I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This discussion was about the peak of trustability or trust in general. And we really unwound what trust meant. We started with simple concepts like credentials and certificates and you know, security things. But we got to a point where trust is about supply chain and software and, and how much you keep up with changes and, and what the latest things are. And we realized that trust has an important time value, that you don't trust initially, you build trust, and then you lose trust, this sort of peak of trustability concept um, that I hadn't heard articulated before and I think is really important in understanding trust in a broader sense, especially when we think about zero trust, which is not the end it's the end point, it's the starting point uh, for building interconnections and relationships um, with people and tech. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. DevOps tools are built to sell within a silo and not across silos because it's so hard. And we've, we ended up with a whole bunch of tools that work silo per silo. Um, and there's very little value, very, very hard to convey the value of a tool that breaks silo. Yeah. Which, which, which is kind of ironic given that the, the purpose of DevOps like, is to break down the silos. And, and now we're, we're, we're just giving up and saying, fine, we'll support the silos too. <laughs> uh, the, um, the way CICD won the battle, that I saw was CICD said, we're going to help one, one team and make it easy for one team to help a, a, the adjacent team. And a win in CICD was not a fully automated process. It was two, two silos passing code to each other. And then it, and then it grew from there. So That's still there a strategy. Yeah. Well, let me ask, uh, um, a rather arcane question. Does your pipeline metaphor have different colored pieces in the pipe? Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean the, just just from a literal different colored pieces? Yeah. Uh, we I did not color it differently. That's a good good question. Um, you should. Because, because I get accused of doing too much rainbowing on my slides. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to, you're right. The, the thing, the thing that we struggle with on the pipeline pieces um, is a, there's a critical concept that we, we realized two years ago and started building around that is really hard to explain. Um, actually, I should probably do a whole DevOps uh, Tuesday session about this. Um, but what, what we find is in order to make the pipeline work, you have to change the context of where the work is being done. And when mm -hmm. we use context, that means that sometimes you're on a server doing configuration. Sometimes you're at the, the service where you're talking to yeah. an endpoint. And then a pipeline requires you to sort of bounce back and forth all the time. It's like, oh, I can do this on the machine, get, get some information. I have to come back to the service, do work on the service and talk to systems only it can talk to, and then slide the the locus of work, the focus of work back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, and I have found that's incredibly hard to explain. Gradient. <laughs> Gradient? Gradient. Yeah. And we did this for one of our um, customers who, like, we don't work primarily with marketing. We usually work with manufacturers and, you know, whatever. But sometimes in the CMO discussions, we use the, the notion of a gradient because they're trying to convey a concept of switching from one side to another. And if it's a visual metaphor, you know, take a box and use the color line to gradiate hmm. the colors across the piece of the pipe, where if all the connectors are red and all the, you know, widgets are blue, um, you can go from light, light mauve to dark purple as you're sliding the service to the server or a server to the service. And you use the color metaphors because again, you know, like I don't come from a psychology background, but clearly 
it works when it comes to visual learning and using colors as a way. It also, you know, ties to branding and, and all that other kind of stuff. But we found that it's a very simple way for people to understand very complex kind of ideas and thought processes. It's one caveat. Though. Pardon? That there's one caveat though with that. Which is? Got to make it accessibility friendly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you have to be careful on the color choices or the add-in. We do, we do. Our, our UX designers actually colorblind, so we tend to be super sensitive. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 it's a very, very valid point. What I was going to say is, you know, um, I was actually reading an article about someone who develops software who is visually impaired and mm. he writes his code in Braille and it, it then translates and other people test and whatever. And of all the choices that he made of specialization, it's UI, <laughs> which I think is absolutely remarkable. And so, yeah, I, I 100% agree, Klaus. Mm. Really important. I, and I found the better job you do with it, the more it assists everybody. Yes, without question. Good, good tagging. Yeah. Um, I I would I'll send you the top. Oh. <laughs> 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 Thank you. I'll take it. Um, let's see. If see if we can, I just as an agenda. We, we're scheduled out, so I, I'm not going to worry about finding what our next topic is because we're way, way ahead. Um, the topic today is about trust. I just scrolled off the screen, sorry. Uh, but Sorry to make you all watch the housekeeping parts. Um, so today is, is trust as a priming example. Um, and we, we actually had a whole bunch of, of topics heat up, like, do we need trust? What's the evolution of trust? Uh, what do we? <laughs> how do we use trust? Um, and one thing I know, boy, especially watching what's going on, like we didn't talk about Microsoft's OMI uh, vulnerability. This is like the cornerstone of everything we're building today. Is can we actually trust that? You know, our secrets are secure, that the operating systems we're running are haven't been tampered with or the applications, you know, doing what we think they're doing only. Um, oh boy, does anybody have a suggestion on where to start with trust as a as a broader conversation? Uh, I think the topic started when we were talking about the SSL search and CAs. Oh, you're so, right. So that that that. I mean, we're, we're kind of missing the the other parts that, that were involved in this the decision, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, that that would be probably the, the better starting point for that. Um, okay. We we can also talk about like trust in, in terms of keeping the data and again like secret store or database. Um, I I guess. When, when I think about building things for the future and framing it back into you know, where we were talking earlier about big corps and you know, watching them carefully, um, and I, I don't mean to get into the, you know, do we trust you know, big companies to, to protect users? Um, there isn't a lot of historical precedent in that being a, you know, the, we should assume the opposite. But if we were to then say, all right, well, what if we don't trust the big companies to do it? We're going to turn around and let everybody do it in small in small batches. Um, well, the, the, there have been attempts at uh, decentralizing trust. Probably the, the, the most historically known one was a web of trust. Uh, clearly, that was a dumpster fire in, in the end um, because... It turns out that that trust is a very subjective thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I might trust you. You you might trust Joanne. Um, Does that mean you? Joanne don't might trust, trust another third person, which which I might not trust. So 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 there there are 
there are cases where there are conflicts of trust for, for sure. Um, ultimately, from what I've seen in the past decade or so, um, it seems that uh, trust as a uh, uh, as an artifact of of a community is more stable than trust on 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 smaller entities or or on uh, um, on, on corporations. Uh, the example coming to mind with that is again CAs, certificate authorities. Yeah, uh, we. We trust certificate authorities, but we verify them. And when there are cases where, where the CAs have broken that trust, they, there's been an immense backlash. Like CAs that, that gave away root search to, to governments, they got blacklisted in a snap. Um, so, there, so there's definitely something to say about a community policing itself with that uh, and acting quickly to remove bad actors. Wow. I, there's, I have a ton of avenues to, of questions. I, let me start with just the most basic. Are certificates secure enough? Like if we, if we had a system where we actually could, could, you know, we were doing what you're describing. We're blacklisting people. We're revoking certificates. We have very clear methodologies. If we could really count on certificates, I, mean, I, I actually think we do really count on certificates. Maybe we shouldn't. Um, is, is that a is that technical part of the solution enough? Uh, I guess but, it would depend on, on, on who you ask. So we, okay. we, can, we can probably trust certificates to handle transport encryption, which okay. is how they're used now. Uh, however, if you were to ask John, he would say certificates now are useless because they used to be uh, a method for verifying identity and, and they're no longer that function. Now, now at, at best, you use certificates to verify that the server uh, or that that the person requesting the certificate controls the domain, they're, but there's anonymity there now. That's yeah. So there's there's three tiers that you just named, and I, I agree with your assessment. But I want to just reflect it back to you and make sure that we're we're talking the same thing. There's encrypting the communications between two endpoints. We trust certificates for that. There is saying, hey, the site that I think I'm visiting is actually the site that I'm visiting. We, we pretty much trust certificates for that, except there's people can create names that look very similar, right? We, we talked about this, I think, last mm -hmm. week with the relic letters that, that allow people to create domains that look identical to the legitimate domains. Humble so, so that's that's a weakening of that of that tier. And then there's a third piece, which is um, that I actually trust the true identity of the, of the, right. This is actually the, the, the identity has been verified. Maybe two and three are, are, are not that different. They, they kind of go hand in, well, two is, is kind of an amalgamation of the first and, and, the, and the third one. You, you cannot have transport uh, encryption if you cannot verify that the receipt that the that the person gi giving you the the response is the the one owning the, the certificate, and, and that's ultimately how TLS works, right? You you have your your the public certificate. Uh, you as a client in, encrypt your your first request using the public certificate so that only the person holding the private key can decrypt it. Um, and the person using the private key uses that to encrypt the response so that it can only be decrypted with the public cert. So you verify that the server owns or that the response 
from the server is legitimate. Um, similarly, like with MTLS, you add the same for, for, for the client side. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that, but that is only verifying that the endpoint that you're talking to holds the authentic, an authentic private key. It, it does not tell you that the person holding the private keys actually, or that the server holding the private key is actually a legitimate server that it right. claims uh, for the service that it claims to, to provide. Well, I, you know, I think this whole notion of IAM and IAS is changing to the degree that there's going to be another A in front of that I. It's, it's the authorization, the authority to do something, the identification that you have the authority, and then below that, the other, <clears throat> excuse me, significant points, because you know, Klaus just voiced something that's running around in my head that that's basically, it used to be you are who you say you are, but it is no longer. Mm-hmm. Because you have proxy, because yeah. you have so many ways that you can hide yourself from being, whether it's on, you know, um, setting up a domain and, 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 privatizing the information of who owns that domain, who the webmaster is, all of that, all the way down to the piece of code and and it needing to be introspected to verify that the sender, the receiver, and the content are actually going back and forth between the right places and the right entities or or the representative of that entity. And so I think that whole model needs a bit of tweak to be more driven by, I have the authority to do it because I have a term condition, some form of immutability that gives me that authority. Then I have the identity. Then I have the uh, authorization, which is different than authority because it's that's based on role. And then I have the security kind of like bubbleized around that. So whether it's PKI or PGI or any of the encryption tokens, I mean, part of the thing that I like about the EdgeX stuff um, is the fact that you have the encryption at the same level as the data. Right, and it's represented by the hash. Well, I I may be misinterpreting what I read and what I saw, but it looks to me like that's part of it. But that's kind of the notion that comes up both in blockchain and is coming up in circles that I've heard where people are saying, well, how do I know that that, that individual entity or third party as part of that combo actually has the authority to be sending and receiving information with me? It could be, you know, it's, it's like getting a contact request in LinkedIn. Who the hell is this person and why do they want to be part of my network? Are they just going to, you know, mine my network for their own personal uh, pocketbook or like, why would I do this? And a lot of companies are getting to that point of, we want to be a little bit more prohibitive in who we authorize, who we give that authority to, to limit the, um, uh, the field, if you will, the attack field is the word that I was looking for. So that goes to I, which, yeah, I, I think who do we trust, but how do we trust them? Well, that, and that's that's like zero trust network, right? It's sort of like you're assuming you're going to get, you know, unreliable, unreliable connections from every direction, right? From that perspective. Um, well, it's part of zero trust, but it's also part of a, a a way of doing business that's starting to emerge. It's very nascent but it's starting to come out of some of the biggest companies that have been hacked. Mm. And to your point on supply chain, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. The the whole idea of a supply chain, um, that really shook the world, I think, more than we realized, the IT world. Um, It's going to take years for it to be fully digested, but... um, 
the idea that that somebody upstream from you had a weak link and was able to somebody who slipped code into their pro you know their processes that you really didn't even know to audit or I, this is this is where it gets really weird it's like yeah i can make sure that i trust the people i'm immediately interacting with but i don't know where what's happened to their system right, right. Well, it's it's really reflected on the um, the manufacturing side on the shop floor because if you're taking mm -hmm. if you have suppliers dropping recipes or spec data, you know, intolerance out of tolerance for quality control into a live running production line, yeah. you gotta. I, I mean, we used to jump through hoops doing it previously, like when I was still in the corporate world, um, setting up the audit situations of isolating that data and then running demons and all sorts of weirdness on little tiny, you know, PCs that we would configure as servers to be able to do it. Now it's even worse because the data that's pulled out of direct B2B interaction from a supplier into production that goes, it's also being monitor, monitored by your, by your customer is insane in that respect. Well, in that case, if we keep going, and this is a little bit away from trust, but I think it's it's relevant, would be somebody sends you a new back, new tolerance. Um, would you then? Um, oh boy, you could incorporate that new spec, and it could make everything break in your supply in in, in your in your factory, right? If the yes. It's a huge problem. Ugh. It's a huge problem. So like way back in the day, what we were doing was we would have a provision server come from the supplier that we audited before it was ever put on a network. And then any drop would come directly on, you know, a white area network connection through two or three different forms of firewalling um, to isolate the code not only verify and and verify the validity of the sender but but the actual code itself and then we would extrapolate and extract out transform and load into another server that we owned that we could audit directly and introspect every packet of that code before we would ever let it on a production line and it was a huge process it took I can't tell you the amount of effort, physical effort of dragging servers onto shop floors that were, I mean, we're talking factories of three to 5 million square feet. And every supplier that was like a main supplier had to have this kind of configurability and this kind of con connectivity. And every customer wanted to be monitoring their product going through the line at any given point in time. So it's like an end tier problem that took me more than a year to fix for a, 150 customers and a thousand suppliers. Does, does that then translate to being accelerating the change process? Because the, the thing that comes to mind when you describe that, and I, and to me, this is interesting because I actually think this ties right back to trust in, in a, in two steps. If I look at what you just described, I'm like, okay, the simple thing to do is to slow down, take fewer changes. But if you do that, you're going to get behind. You're going to have security patches that get needed, trust right. things, right? You know, uh, certificates that need to get revoked, or some, or you're slow hearing. Oh, I, you shouldn't do this. This thing anymore. It's not safe. And so that's all blocked up. You don't have a fast way to respond. So to me, everything you're saying drives towards a much more dynamic process that is more self checks in it and validation pieces and it's always sort of saying hey you know you know did this change in a way that i didn't expect you know let me let me throw errors or be tolerant to it um yeah yeah well actually we got the <clears throat> we managed to create something rather unique um and i have to be careful what i say because some of it is still running even even 10 years later um the or even longer than that um what we did was we created an intersectionality 
of customers and suppliers with us in the middle and created these weird sort of 10.10.10 type networks that had firewalls on every single part of it. And we had test engineers that were actually literally monitoring the code, scheduling code drops. Uh, we would hold it sort of like in limbo before it came up. But over time, we established a, a set of protocols and predicates, as we called it, that gave us the needed acceleration because you never have one customer's goods running through a production cycle at one time. You have 10 different customers and X number of suppliers. And they may, you know, you can have mixed trays of equipment or piece parts that are hitting, you know, this, call it a 15 by 20 foot oven at one time. And each needs to be monitored and each needs a different tolerance and each has a different spec, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very convoluted and I won't go into all the details, but to accelerate it, we literally hardwired machines together. I mean, RS-232 was my friend. So was RJ-45. And we had physical devices do as much of that as we could. We ran the whole thing on, on PKI. But the actual packet after the header and footer were taken off and, and validated and whatever were really not a huge amount of code, right? We're talking like could be 1,500 lines of code max. So that's something that you can actually use a human being to do. Now I understand that there are a few companies that are using AI to do it instead. So they've taken like 10 or 15 years of, uh, of historian or historical data created models, and now they're training AI to do it for them so that they can free the body off the shop floor. And this is where AI starts to come in. So that leads me to the question of, well, do you trust the AI? And that's that really should be part of the trust discussion as well. All right. In, in the last five minutes, we have expanded trust in a really significant way. Um, Sorry. That I think is appropriate. No, this is this this to me is is why this is such a hard topic to talk about because people sit down thinking like I did. You know, we're going to be talking about secrets management and certs and credentialing, and what we're really talking about is supply chain resilience, right? And your ability to you know take in. Uh, updated components for what you build, know that they're they're right. That's where the AI can potentially make a difference, and make that process fast enough so that um, you don't get it. You know, the thing that I I would see you get into, it's like you know, I know if you called us up and you're like, huh, I've got a three year old version of your software and it's doing this, and we're like, good luck with that. Why don't you upgrade to something that's you know relatively recent, and I'll help you. Um, you know, I, the idea that we've got all these interconnected pieces, you know, and you, you have, you, you can't trust software that's new. You can't trust software that's old. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, you know, well, we've got to have, we've got to have a system that keeps everything up to date, right. Or moving at least. Or am I, am I overgeneralizing? Um, no, I don't think you're overgeneralizing. I think, I think trusting software that's new, um, how many people, and, and I would ask this of Klaus as well as you, Rob, how many people do you know that actually avidly go after 1.0 version software? <laughs> uh, for production use or for use in general or like personal um for anything beyond a poc yeah i i, I don't know anyone <laughs> I, I well i mean okay. you can look at you can look at something like terraform where there were they they built an enormous community on you know you know zero dot software so uh, right. The difference, though, is that is is there someone who actively chooses to use the zero dot the, the beta version, or is that is there someone who chooses to to say there is no 
point uh, there's no major release but this product is widely used and it's fitting my use case so i will begrudgingly use the beta uh boy and that's i think part of the challenge we have is things are still evolving so quickly but i but i would also suggest that you know on a more hopeful side there are people there are large enterprises for example within the it groups that have you know either experimentation labs or they have very very early adopters that will turn around and say yes i'm going to bring this in but i'm aware that i want to put walls around it or constraints around it to use it until i'm sure a the software functions but more more particularly the company standing behind it is a real b has a future and c is somewhere between um series a and series b <laughs> No, I'm not joking. I mean, no, no, you know, as an I, analyst, I, I, you, you I, get I, all sides. My my laugh, my laugh is from uh, painful shared experience on that, uh -huh. on on being the other side, right? I, one of the things I right. know, and and part of what I what I find funny, um, we were when we were in that transition. I sat down with a big company who was like, "Yeah, we want to, you know, we have people who want to bet the farm on you, but we're worried that you're you're going to be less stable than Red Hat." is and so we're going to go with red hat i'm like really and then you know six months later they were acquired by ibm and you know it's, it's sort yeah, of like, yeah um yeah we you know the durability of a lot of stuff is is very hard to predict um and i think we we turned to open source i know when my first forays into open source in the early OpenStack days i was excited because we could not be beholden you know we we'd done 10 projects with uh, 10 vendors and they, every single one of them got acquired or nine of 10 mm -hmm. got acquired, um, in that, in that window. And we we're finally like, okay, we can control our own destiny and we don't have to worry about it being acquired. Um, that didn't work out the way we expected either. <laughs> um, so I, it's, this is really, you know, how you build the software and supply chain in your system is really hard. Um, yeah. You know, when I when I had to architect this whole monster, um, and it was because I didn't keep my mouth shut when I should have, um, but it was interesting. It was fun. <laughs> um, it just took a very very long time. It 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 really gives you, it really gives you the perspective of customers, and it really gives you the perspective of those that you're you're buying from and and what they think about things but i think this whole issue of trust even with zero uh trust networks is a concept that everybody scratches their head around because they're still even more today than they were years ago and and this used to be one of my lines during that time period when i was building this thing was i trust you less than you trust me and that I think today, because of cybersecurity and other issues, has to be the mantra of every software maker. But where where does the cycle up begin? Right? Would you just describe to me as a downward spiral? Actually, no. Okay. It's it's the starting point of the bottom of the the spiral coming back up. So if you start with the predicate of I trust you less than you trust me. So let's figure it out together because that's the only way to build the trust. That immediately changes the level of the conversation. That you're just as concerned for them as they are are for you. And call it, you know, intuition or acumen or whatever. But my intuition was always that people would respond better to yes. We're starting at the bottom and working our way up. So let's do this in a way that's beneficial to, to everybody, mutual beneficiality. And I think mutual trust is the thing that's going to come up next, because after zero trust, you have to have some. Yeah, you have to, and that, well, that's you have to spiral back up. Yeah. Plus, were you going to say something? 
Nope. Oh, okay. Um, you should. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we've got to a really profound point because I, I think there's, it's the, it's the flip of the coin on zero trust. You have to, there's a, you have to get out of zero trust and, and build up trust backward, you know, back somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you don't do that, you're always going to be in a situation where you'll never get the most value from either party in the relationship because the walls will still be up. If you don't do anything to take those walls down, even one brick at a time, you'll you'll always be in that situation of, from a software vendor's perspective, constant iteration, constant update, constant forcing your customers to ascribe. I know one company, by the way, that's putting a time limit on its updates. So I update you today in um, exactly six months, I'm going to stop your, your code from working unless I can verify and validate remotely that all the updates, all the patches, everything that's come in between that first day and, and that six-month deadline has been done. Or I'm going to validate your support, your service agreement. I'll invalidate. Okay. And they're, they're a big forcing, They're forcing people to keep up with patches. Yes, patches, fixes, uh, interim releases, whatever you want to call it, even at the certificate level, by the way. I, I can understand that. I, it, it feels draconic, but I can understand why the company would do that, particularly when, yeah. like, if the company is in a, is in a, in a field that typically deals with largely non-compliant customers with regards to patches um like the support costs can be astronomical uh, like For sure. client calls this isn't working why isn't it working well have you applied the patch no but it's not working i'm paying for you <laughs> so oh these are your i'm getting i'm getting ptsd yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. It's all right. It's all right. Yeah. But 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 I mean, we understand why the company has those seemingly draconic rules. Is that? I mean, sure, you you could continue using the software, but you certainly won't have support if you are not up to date. Um, and mm-hmm. I I actually don't. I don't it, think it, it's a bad thing for these software companies. I mean, the, is, there's a contract that has to come on the other side, which means that the person making that expectation had really be certain that they don't break APIs, that they honor backwards compatibility, that they they test smooth upgrading like crazy, right? Right. It, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, well, it's it's, so- it's there's two sides to the contract, right? If you're if yep. you're going to enforce that, which I, I I think you're right, I think you can see the the justification with that, then you need to do your homework on the other side to not put your customer at risk. This is back to a trust question that you're that they can do the upgrade and do the patch and do the changes, um, yep. both allowing them to rehearse it before they they apply it in production, but then you know really be sincere about the upgradability. Yep. Um, it, it, it will also largely depend on, on the type of software that we're talking about. Like when, hey. like a, a, a database vendor might not be able to, um, to request that from their clients, particularly if patches require significant downtime. Um, uh, huh. Like a a NAS or a sand vendor, uh, they they typically already have the the setup that that makes it in many cases safe to do continuous updates. Right. Uh, but I, I I I've seen cases where where that just went terribly wrong because the buried. Uh, some crucial knowledge deep in the release notes, and <laughs> oh, uh, and and it, it led to data loss. 
Right. Which is just, uh, right. That's just unacceptable. Yep. Processes need to protect against that. It's interesting. There's you're, you're making me think almost like a gradient, a trust gradation. Or yes. Gradient where you, you want to be able to like have like, here is the thing that I want you to trust. Right. And, and we're going to take all the off and certificates and security out of it. But the, the trust of that unit of that thing is going to decay over time. So that if you're looking at, you know, year old software, the trustability of that software is, you know, drifting towards zero asymptotically. And if you're looking at the stuff that just got released from the vendor, it might not be at a hundred, like it's actually a, a, not a bell curve exactly more like a bathtub curve, but yeah, there's some, there's some peak of trustability in inside of every component in your system. Um, I love the visual on this. It, it's very hard to quantify that though. Um, uh, it, I mean, it, it's it's not a problem just just and in, in, in trust. It, it's a general AI problem, in that. <laughs> so so like if you if you extend trust to to, to saying like how accurate is this knowledge? Um, like in the previous session we were talking about training sets for AI and, and how they're largely garbage because they're either selected from specific demographics. That don't cover other general demographics, or uh, they're too small, or they're too big, or they're they're, they're not specific enough, enough, or they're too specific. Um, same 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 problems apply to trust. Well, I you know I think we're you could probably do this from this conversation. Put out an outline that that's basically the new you know, the new trust environment and what it should look like. And I think that, you know, the idea of dynamic trust is one that whose time has come, because if you sunset trust at a particular point in time, you actually could create a a mathematical or value-based or financially-based model for what you were describing as the decreasing amount of trust over time because and then servitize it or monetize it as a service we will remotely you know rpa your patches your updates your whatever at x cost and that that's nothing new because sap was doing it for a long time you just paid a huge price for it and if you had bastardized the initial code that you you bought to suit your own circumstance, then that was a whole other issue. But you could actually contractually do this in a way that makes sense for all parties. And think about the value from a service provider's perspective. Your cost of servicing your customers just dropped dramatically. That, that is ultimately the, the CA cert model, right? Like they, they, they have- But it didn't work. Well, I mean, that I, I would actually say that, that that it did work and, and, and it's been and the sunsetting of, of trust has, has been in, increased and in, in, in that uh, so five years ago we, we had three year SSL certs. Right. That right. then then the community decided to cap it at two years. Now at one year and we have yep. Acme where, where the where you circus valid for, for just a month. Uh, and if, if you use something like Bolt you, you can have very short lived source for just minutes for for particularly for, for clients so for mtls so yeah. we we've used we we've we've taken this approach in a very specific domain but we need to now apply this to to everything else that involves trust mm-hmm. okay so so let me give you for instance of of where i'm coming from klaus when we built your secure which is the uh, mobile payment company that i sold um, we built it in such a way that every transaction, the minute the transaction went through and was processed, your trust disappeared. It lasted under five minutes from your device for payment. And we only uh, 
uh, every time you wanted to make a purchase, the minute you um, went back into the system, meaning on your phone, you chose to buy something um, and you put it in a cart, the cart automatically turned on your trust again for the period of time it would take to complete the transaction nice. and then turned it off. Hmm. And nobody knew it was there, but that's how my brain works when it comes to security and certificates and whatever. It should only last as long as you need it to last. And the rest of the time, it does not work, meaning it's not unfunctional, but rather you are not trusted. Uh, I'm taking this further. There, yeah. there's, uh, there, there's also been uh, work done on uh, what on, on, on the on the on gradients of trust not about not specifically about the the duration but also about what information do i trust yes uh so this has started with with auth where 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 you your auth um where, where your client auth client might, might say okay i i will will only uh, request like uh, the email or 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 um or, or username uh, but you can you can also take it further let's say where, where you have uh like an identity broker mm -hmm. uh, who you as an end user trust to to hold to to basically to verify your identity and and you can you can you can then decide so okay i want to verify my email or i want to verify my full address or my phone number so, right. so there's degrees of trust there between you and the identity broker. And then there's trust between the identity broker and a service provider who relies on the identity broker to, to, to say, yes, this, this person is who they claim to be with regards to this information. Right. And the limitation is only with regard to this set of data parameters and data. And on the PPI side, you know, personal privacy information, whatever. There's a lot of there's a lot of work that that's been done. I mean, when we did this, we did this before Apple had its secure component part or Android had its secure area. And we were looking for the way around that. And it's part of what, why the company was sold so quickly was because when we developed it, we used time as the factor. And I, I think in, in this notion of trust, time is still a key component that can be used to advantage. And so the sunsetting of a license, because you haven't kept your part of the bargain in that period of time, patches, updates, whatever, is a good factor. Um, yeah. But I, I see this whole area needing to be far more dynamic. Like one of the, one of the things that I'm looking into a lot and thinking about a lot is bit ID. Not necessarily building a full blockchain out for some of these things, but just the notion of the ID and, and affixing that ID with the you know credentials that would have to be provided to get that ID as part of a way of going around this notion of not only who do I trust, but I don't need to know who they are. I need to know that that ID has clout. It has some level of veracity to it. And yep. so that's that's the ID provider or whatever, um, the host of that. And then using that ID as opposed to uh, as the, let's say, header in a packet of information being transferred with a validated receiver who has the same bit ID notion. Mm -hmm. And that sort of gets you over that hurdle because you're trusting in a provider, whether it's, whether it's, you know, Joe Blow, three three guys in a garage or Microsoft, it doesn't matter. It's a bit ID that can't be changed in any way, period, full stop. So once you're verified, you're verified. And that starts to reconcile some of the issues I've seen with certificates and phishing and everything else. And Rob's going to kill me because it's 1203. <laughs> this is a hard one to stop because I, I feel like we have really reached a a redefinition of what I expected trust to be um, that is so much more powerful than the simple, the simple definition. 
Right. Um, it, it, it's a very deep rabbit hole. Uh, perhaps two yeah. keywords for future discussion uh, based on the topics that we just were just talking about. Uh, KYC and KYB. All right. What are KYC? Uh, know your know customer. Your customer. And know your oh. business. Yeah. Gotcha. Actually, I think there's yeah, a third right. one now, Klaus. Know your data. Uh, uh, probably. Yeah. This is basically the KY set. <laughs> KY Astro. Don't go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> Makes everything smoother. All right. And on that note. <laughs> so so that's, Kentucky, that's Kentucky KY, right? Bourbon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, talk about brand durability. All right. <laughs> brand durability. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think know your is, data is going to be a good one. All right, I'm gonna. I've, I've got it tracked as a topic. We'll probably just slide it right in. Um, I did not do that on purpose. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that note, before I, I I go any further down on this one, um, I will I will see you on the next conversation. I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, I'll talk you to you. Soon. Bye. Take care. Bye, all. Wow. I, this is one of those conversations that really has me reshaping how I approach whole topics in technology. Uh, deeply powerful, and I, I really got a lot, a lot out of this discussion. I hope you did, too. Please join us. Uh, .2030.cloud is the place to read and see past episodes and sign up for new ones. Looking forward to being in the conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.